All right, we won't have you stand up in another minute. I saw you that last time. Before we look at the text, I do want us to take just a quick minute to celebrate how the Lord does answer our prayers as we ask him to speak, as we ask him to work, as we've been in this discipleship series, asking the Lord to to be at work in making disciples. So just let me tell you some fun things that the Lord's doing around here. Um, 60 kids have memorized the books of the Bible in order. 60 kids. I don't know if you know them, but uh, that's part of them learning where Zephaniah and Haggai go in the scriptures. 10 of those kids are in New Believers class, 12 kids in our baptism class, which means they've made recent professions of faith in Christ. Uh, Just this past week, four of our middle schoolers placed faith in Christ, were born again as they heard the gospel. Yeah. 53 of our middle schoolers have recently joined a small group that's specific purpose is to uh, train them, equip them, and encourage them to read their Bible every single day. Middle schoolers, 53 of them reading the scriptures, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed again on the the back of our message memo is that discipleship guide, and it's not just for uh, us, our high schoolers are using that in their Sunday night small groups, and so encouraging text from a mom this past week, uh, our daughter comes home and talks about the discussion from her senior high small group, and then as a family, we've been able to discuss the topics and questions from the sermon each week as well, so discipleship that's happening in the home and in the church partnering together, that's what we want to seek the Lord for. On adult level, we've had three adults who have placed faith in Christ recently through Discovery Bible Study and our Alpha Ministry, 140 guests at our September guest luncheon and 35 new families represented in our Financial Peace University that's going on right now. So you understand why I share all those things with you? Because discipleship and making disciples is far more than two or three people doing a study together. Discipleship is, wherever we are, becoming more like our leader and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that process is, remember, three major parts. Becoming a Christ follower, then maturing as a Christ follower, and then multiplying Christ followers. So wherever we are on that journey, if you're still seeking, asking questions. Next step, becoming a Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower, maturing, learning to obey the scriptures, to know what the scripture says, and to walk with the Lord, to be like Jesus, and then to be a a multiplier, that as God used somebody to help you in your journey, that you would turn around and say, I want to help them. So I appreciated my friend Sam grabbing me in the portico, and he's like, oh, why do I talk to him? Now he talks about me. Uh, But he grabbed me in the portico. He just recently came to Christ, was baptized, and said, I want to begin to help other at-risk youth because I want to be able to do for them what's happened for me. That's discipleship. You see it? So that making disciples, God is 
answer in our prayer. So when we sing that, before we open the scripture together, speak, O Lord, and if you notice, the words are kind of unique each week. It's not a rote prayer. It's adjusted kind of each week. Speak, O Lord. He is answering that. And so we're not singing a song. We're not filling a gap. We're asking the Lord to do what I believe he wants to do. Speak to us through his word that we might be more like Jesus. So in that specific journey, uh, we are at this stage of looking at what it means to become a Christ follower. We have seen that what God intended for humanity was that we would live a life of fullness and wholeness. And by that, I mean, let me interpret this real quickly for you, that we might live in relationship with him, oneness with God through our submission to him, oneness with self as we are free of self-consciousness, oneness as we live as stewards in dominion over this earth, and oneness with one another as we live in community, because the Lord said it's not good for man to be alone. So that is life as God intended us to live it. But because Adam and Eve traded submission for distrust, disobedience, and hiding, then not just this relationship with God was broken, but everything that God intended for us and how to live was broken. Brokenness with God, brokenness with self, brokenness with others, and brokenness with the world. That's why... We can feel so empty, so kind of out of whack in our lives at times because we live in a fallen world and we live in fallen relationships. Everything that God intended has been broken according to sin. But, but in the midst of that brokenness, the beauty of what we saw at the end of Genesis chapter three last week was mercy. God's mercy, specifically that God mercifully covered Adam and Eve in their sin, but he did so through death. He provided a covering, but that covering came at the cost of death. And, and I think you can probably understand that even, even in Genesis 3, way, 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 way before the person of Jesus enters the scene as Jesus of Nazareth, we understand that God was in doing this in the garden by providing a covering through death. He was foreshadowing what Jesus Christ would do for Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, that's who he was. For the unjust, that's who we are. So that he might bring us back to fullness, back to wholeness. So there is something that Christ has done in his death that is essential to our being restored to right relationship with God. And that something, watch, is unique to him because Jesus said this about himself. I am the way, not a way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what I want us to see this morning from the text, here's what we're asking, Lord speak to us, is this. There is something uniquely powerful, uniquely powerful about the death 
of Jesus to restore us to right relationship with God. But that's next week. (laughs) Because the death that he died was only possible because the life he lived. Ian Thomas says the life he lived qualified him for the death he died. So our goal this morning is actually to see what was unique about the life of Jesus that qualified him to die a unique death to restore us to right relationship with God. So that's our focus. Lord, speak to us about the life of Jesus and what was profoundly unique about him in his living that qualified him to be unique in his dying. So we're going to look at five aspects of the uniqueness of Jesus. I invite you to join me first in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, pretty familiar passage, especially if you came to church at Christmas time. Matthew chapter 1 simply speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus' birth. Join me verse 18 of Matthew 1. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned her to send her away secretly. Because why? Because she was with child and they weren't yet married. But when he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, she has not been unfaithful. She has uniquely, and this is wildly unique, she has conceived without an earthly father being involved in any way. Now, we have gotten creative as science has developed, but we haven't gotten creative so that there isn't an earthly father involved in some way. But the angel says the uniqueness of Jesus in his birth is that he was born of a woman. That's not unique. Right? I won't, I, won't, I won't ask you. If you were born of a woman, raise your hand because that'd be a silly question. <laughs> All of us born of a woman. What's unique about Jesus? <laughs> born of a woman but conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, not an earthly father involved in the process. Now, you get that that's unique. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that there wasn't an earthly follow, follower involved? Well, a father involved, here's why. If there wasn't an earthly father, was Jesus really human? In other words, or was he like an alien? Which is why he's portrayed as floating around with a bright ring over his head. Was he really human? Now, when he was born of a woman, here's what the text says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Why did she wrap him in cloths? 
Because Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God himself would have actually gotten cold. And though he was God, because conceived by the Holy Spirit, he, he didn't walk out of the womb. <laughs> and he couldn't walk home. She laid him in a mat because he couldn't walk. You see, these are, these are evidence. You think that's just what's silly. No, these are evidences that this, this child, this baby that was born was really human. So conceived by the spirit within a woman, Mary, he was a man. But here's why it's important that an earthly father was not involved. Romans 5 says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, in other words, death, the consequence of sin, and so death spread to all men through, through a man. Here's what I want to make sure you capture. Yes, Eve was deceived and she ate and gave to her husband and he ate. But the scripture is very clear that the pattern of sin went through the man. So a baby could be born of a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit, you could genuinely have, uniquely so, an, a baby who was a man, but did not have the sin nature that was passed through the man. Doesn't mean that Mary didn't have a sin nature. Doesn't mean that women don't have a sin nature. Sorry, ladies. It means that it's passed through the man. And that's why it's so significant that Jesus was born of a woman, but conceived not by an earthly father, but by the Holy Spirit. So that he would be human, but without a sin nature. So was he God? Paul speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus when he says in Philippians 2, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality, equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he had it. He was God. But he did not insist on hanging on to all the rights and privileges that came with being God, the text continues in Philippians 2, verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, I understand. Born of a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, a man but without a sin nature, unlike any other person that's ever been born. 
And unlike any other person that's ever been born, he was God. And by the way, repeatedly through his life claimed that he was God and people understood. That's why they were incensed and often sought to kill him. See, those who understood what he was doing understood what he's saying, what he's doing is a claim to be God because he's, he is doing things that we understand only God can do. So they understood clearly he was God. What was unique about Jesus was he was God but lived with the limitations of a man, having emptied himself. So never ever less than God, but living with the limitations of a man because he was born of a woman, conceived by the Holy Spirit, a man, but without a sin nature. Now, just give you a few quick examples of God, but lived with the limitations of man. In other words, he, he was God, but the scripture says he grew hungry. You understand, apart from him taking on human flesh, God is not searching the pantry of heaven going, man, can I find something to eat up here? I'm like starving. That sounds silly, but Jesus, it says, was hungry. Well, that was never true as the Father dwells in heaven. God but hungry. God but tired. No afternoon naps needed in heaven. God, but sweating drops of blood. Not just sweating, which I'm sure Jesus sweat, by the way. You understand? The disciples certainly said at one point to Jesus, dude, you are ripe. <laughs> Whoo! But sweating drops of blood. God, but learning. That's what Luke 2.52 says, that, that he's growing in stature and wisdom, God and men. He learned. Jesus learning how to read. Jesus learning, God learning how to talk. God who is eternal, but being born and having an end, dying. Taking on the limitations of man. See, this is the uniqueness of Jesus. We'll see in a minute why this matters so much. But we need to understand, yes, he was God. He laid aside, born of woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, a man, but without a sin nature. God, but living with the limitations of man. Hebrews 4, 15, you might write this beside number four. I should have actually, in case you haven't been writing these down, I should have put these on the, uh, on the text, uh, on the message memo. Beside number one, write, if you would, to help for your notes in the future, Matthew 1, 18 through 20. That's the reference for number one, Matthew 1, 18 through 20. Beside number two, right, if you would, if you're taking notes, Luke 2, 7, that's the reference. Luke 2, 7, and then second verse for number two, Romans 5, 12 is the text we read to show that he was a man but didn't have a sin nature. Beside number three, you might write Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, because that's where we see God but lived with the limitations of a man. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Now, number four, 
If you would write Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. Here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So the uniqueness of Jesus is what? He was tempted as a man, but what? Never sinned as all men do. Tempted as a man, but never sinned as all men do. Now, again, I think some of you are on, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. But if you ever really start to unpack in your own thinking the reality of what would have been so profoundly unique about Jesus in this, being tempted but without sin. Just give me, let me run through some examples. You need to write them down. I just want you to understand, thinking about Jesus, a toddler. See, he was a toddler, but he never had a temper tantrum. You may go, are temper tantrums sinful? Oh, yeah. Come on, you've seen it. (laughs) I will get my way, you know. He never melted down in the Jerusalem marketplace until Mary was like, we got to get this boy home. (laughs) He was a toddler, though. Never a temper tantrum. He was a son who never disobeyed mom. An older brother who never bullied his siblings. He was an older brother. Brothers and sisters. Never bullied them. (laughs) A teenager without an attitude. (laughs) I mean, you think feeding the 5,000 is a miracle. How about a teenager without an attitude? That's a miracle, folks. Come on. (laughs) See, I'm... Don't misunderstand here. I am not, I'm not trying to drag Jesus through the dirt. I'm actually wanting us to lift up. See, the fact that he was a teenager doesn't lower my understanding of Jesus, my appreciation for Jesus. That he was a teenager without an attitude increases my elevation of Jesus and the uniqueness of who he really was. To think that that he was a single man without a lustful thought. I hate to say it, but it's almost like they're hand in hand in our day. Young man, it's just just the way it is. They're going to have lustful thoughts. A young man without a lustful thought. Tempted, but without sin. A virgin his entire life. Because he never married. So never a lustful thought, never a sinful action as it related to sexual desire. He was hated, but never hated. That's amazing. Hated, but never hated. Never watch. Never, you may go, well, I'm not an angry person, I'm not a vengeful person, but, but never even kind of had those thoughts of what would I do to them if I could. Well, he could and he didn't. He didn't even have the thought. 
Hated but never hated, betrayed but never became bitter. Persecuted but never complained or retaliated. Right? Amazing. I should have added one more. Never skip church to watch a football game. <laughs> it's for everybody online. <laughs> Just play. It's not skip church. But you get what I'm saying? Was he God? Yes. 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 Was he a man? Yes. That matters. Beside number five, right, uh, two verses. First, Matthew 28, 18, please. Matthew 28, 18, where it says, Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he has all authority. But then we read in John chapter five, but first, he has all authority. Now write a second verse, John chapter five, verse 30. He has all authority, but John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Now, what's he saying? I can, but I, I don't. I have the authority to, but I, I don't. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Imagine, never ever seeking his will, only ever seeking the will of the Father, even if you have all authority. That's just profoundly powerful about the person of Jesus. He had all authority, but lived in continual, constant submission to the Father. Had all authority, but lived in continual submission to the Father. Now, are the more uniqueness of Jesus? Probably so. These are five that I wanted to capture, not because we would think, again, not because we would think less of Jesus or because we would think, wow, what a weirdo. But rather, we would recognize because of his uniqueness, all of these things, because of those uniqueness, he is actually good news for everybody else. See what I'm saying? His uniqueness means good news for every, everybody else. Beginning with, of course, that he could take our penalty for sin. See, the uniqueness of Jesus, of that he was without sin, is the very thing, remember, the life he lived qualified him for the death he died. And the life he lived of being tempted but being without sin is the only reason that he could take our penalty for sin. There'll be more next week in the death of how and what was all involved in taking our penalty. But you can write 2 Corinthians 5.21 beside this point. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made him who son, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we so that we might become the righteousness of God in him because he was righteous without sin and he died a substitutionary death in our place. That's good news. 
Now, can I have your eyes for just a moment here? I want to make sure you're clear. Because he paid the penalty for sin, not only am I sin, 1 John 2, 2 says, but for the sin of all the world, does that mean all the world has been saved? No. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus has indeed paid the penalty for those who will admit they deserve it. Believe he's taken it and receive it as a free gift. So I want you to know, good news. Jesus has taken your penalty and offers it the free gift of salvation. Have you admitted you deserve the wrath of God because of your sin? Believe that Jesus has taken it and received it as a, a free gift. Not by works, not by some works, not what you're believing and you're doing, but by faith alone. You might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm not going to assume everybody listening has received that free gift. You might know it, but there's a difference between knowing it and receiving it. Admit that I do not deserve it, but believe that Christ has taken it. Good news because of the uniqueness of the life of Jesus. See, his life, his life mattered. I, I, that's what I want to make sure when you walk out today, you go, the life of Jesus really mattered. Not just the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus really mattered because it was the life he lived that qualified him for the death he died. Good news for all who believe. Second, it's good news because he can, this is what the text says, sympathize with our weaknesses. Now I'm going to take a few minutes to make sure we can unpack this. What does it mean that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses? Does that simply mean he goes, oh, you poor souls. Or as I've learned, they say in the South, oh, God bless them. Which means, you poor soul. <laughs> he goes, ah. Oh. Is, is that what he's talking about? Sympathize? No, this is the text it came from. So let me take us back to, we looked at it a moment ago, Hebrews 4.15. This is where we get this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he took on, though he was God, he took on the limitations of man. And because he took on the limitations of man, he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet didn't sin. So when he talks about weaknesses, he can sympathize with our weaknesses What's the scripture talking about specifically? Our temptations. He can sympathize with how you are tempted. Why? Because he had been tempted also. See, so here's what I want us to understand. Jesus was not like, has this podium ever been tempted? No. 
Jesus was not like this object that came and like a computer or a machine went through life and didn't sin because a machine that doesn't sin is not good news for me because I'm not a machine, but a man who was tempted like I am and didn't sin. That's good news. So here, I'm going to press you a little bit here. Did Jesus have human desire? Yes, it's very clear. Jesus was hungry. We talked about that one. Is it wrong to be hungry? Can you sin in your hunger? Oh, sorry. Yes. We can sin in our hunger in multiple ways. Gluttony is one. Finding comfort in our food. We even call it that, comfort food. Or we can sin in our hunger and saying, I will not satisfy it because my body image is my idol. See, we can, but, but is the desire for food, desire to eat, is that sin? No, it's part of being human. Is Jesus' desire, whew, man, I need a good night's sleep. Did he desire sleep? Sure, he was tired. Wrong to be tired? No. Can you sin in your desire for sleep? Oh, yeah. Time to get up. Time to go to your work because we honor God by going to our work and we and flip over. Proverbs talk about a little rolling, a little folding of the hands. We can, we can sin in that. Jesus, see, Jesus was hungry, but never sinned in his hunger. Jesus tired, but never sinned in his weariness. Okay, you ready? Jesus have sexual desire? Yeah. Most of you are like, uh, I'm sitting this one out. You can go ahead. <laughs> I know this is difficult, and some are going to disagree. That's all right. But I think Adam had sexual desire before the fall. I think sexual desire is a gift from God that has been so perverted in our day, it's almost impossible for us to imagine desire apart from Lust and sin. But if Jesus was a man without desire, he can't sympathize. He's just this, a podium. But if he was a man, and don't misunderstand. It's not like, oh man, there was lustful desire, but never acted upon. There was desire that never turned dark. You know how powerful that is to know that when our culture is suffering under so much perversion of sexual desire 
gone bad, gone dark, to know that, that Jesus had desire, but never turned it dark or bad in mind and thought and attitude or action. But he can sympathize with your weakness. That matters. That really matters. The life of Jesus, understanding his life. And again, I want to say it again. I hope you didn't hear me just diminish Jesus. I hope you heard me elevate the incredible gift of the life of Jesus. A real life who didn't float through life, who didn't have a glowing ring over his head. A man, tempted as a man, but never sinned as all men do. Fantastic. Hope. See what I mean now? His uniqueness doesn't make him weird. It makes him good news for the rest of us. The weakness not only of, of being tempted as he was, but look what it says. Therefore, this is why it's good news. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when? In the time of need. See? Tempted. I understand. I didn't yield. And when you are being tempted in the midst, in the time of need, not when you think you're going to be tempted tonight or next week. See, that's part of how we miss the mark of learning to walk in the good news of Jesus who promises grace and mercy to help when? In the time of need. We pray about things before the time of need, but then we fail to pray in the time of need. You can translate this, I'm sure, to your personal circumstances right now, but it was first really helped by this by Robertson McQuilkin, president of Columbia, when I was a student there. Unmarried college student. And he would simply say, guys, I know you all are praying before you go on your date. It's okay. But it's actually when you're with the girl. Alone. When you don't want to pray, that's when you need to pray. What's he saying? In the time of, in the time of need. In the time of temptation. So, men or women, whatever it is you're, you're tempted with, that's real for you, not just theoretical, like you're a podium not really tempted. Because there's stuff that I'm not tempted with. But there's other stuff I'm really tempted with. So what are you really tempted by? And in that moment, that's when Jesus says, I can sympathize, cry out to me in the moment, not before the moment, not after the moment, in the moment, so you can have grace and mercy in the moment. Grace and mercy to, to help. To help what? To say no to what Jesus said no to. I am 100% confident, friends, 
that if we, the people of God, learn to cry out to Jesus who can sympathize with us in our time of need. And sometimes, you know, it's not like, oh, temptation doesn't usually come and go that quickly, does it? It's like there to stay. And so the time of need lasts. And so what should we do as long as the temptation lasts? Continue to cry out in the time of need. If you're like, eh, I don't know. Just try it this week. Seriously. Pray as long as you are in the moment of temptation for grace and mercy to help. And I am 100% certain based on the promise of scripture, the Lord will meet you in your time of need. Sometimes we start praying and then we go, no, I just want, and we stop. And it wasn't that it didn't work. (laughs) It's that we were still in time of need and we stopped boldly asking. See, the life of Jesus matters because he was really human. God, not, you didn't hear anything that said that he's less than God. Really, really human. He can sympathize with our weaknesses and not only our temptation, but what often leads us to temptation, he can sympathize with our sufferings, that he has known our sufferings. Jesus has known our sufferings. He has known betrayal. And I know some of you, some of you really suffer with betrayal. You made a commitment to somebody for the rest of your life and they didn't follow through. Jesus knows your suffering. His life matters. He knows false accusation. He was falsely accused. Maybe you've been falsely accused at work in your family, on the street. See, the life of Jesus really mattered to me. As a younger man, my first year as an elder here at Christian Family Chapel back in the late 90s, we had done something righteously before the Lord on behalf of a person and got falsely accused of doing them wrong. And everything in me wanted to defend myself, but we had said, no, we are not going to share everything about the story out of love and protection for another person part of the story. And I learned. I didn't like it. You can live right and be accused of wrong. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. Don't hear me in that. In this situation, no, I felt like, no, we did right. Why am I being falsely accused? And it was a a realization for me because that's part of following Jesus who did right but was falsely accused. 
He's known the suffering of abandonment. And I know that's a real suffering. Your spouse left, your dad left, your mom left. Your mom never wanted you. You've lived with that abandonment from adoption, feeling of abandonment because of adoption. Does Jesus know that? Yes. See that? His life matters. He understands. And he says, come, come to me to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. He knows grief. Jesus knew grief. He knew the grief. Because I have a couple friends right now who have been told very specifically, all of us know we're gonna die, but they've been told very specifically, you have X number of months to live. There is no cure. That's a whole new path to walk. And that's a path Jesus walked. He says in John chapter 13, I know my hour has come. He knows that grief. That, that may be something that will be true in my future journey. It's been helpful for me to know if that's ever my journey, Jesus has already walked it. And I got a text from a dad this week. Just broken and grieving over the decisions of his son. Just continuing to wreck his life. And I thought, tried to communicate to the father. Jesus knows that grief. Literally says he wept over Jerusalem because of the decisions that they were making to walk away from life and to choose their own way. He, so he, he understands that. You understand what I'm saying? I'm almost overwhelmed at times by the number of parents who feel the grief for their wayward son, their wayward daughter. And we think as if Jesus would not understand that. And yet, it says very clearly, he understood that clearly, and it, and it broke his heart, and he wept like you weep. That's why when we sing that song, there's a God who weeps, there's a God who bleeds. That matters. The life of Jesus matters. He wasn't simply an object. He was God. And really human. And he lived life as God intended man to really live. See, this is the beauty of looking at the life of Jesus. We see finally in Jesus a man who really lived as God intended man to live. And it's different. Catch this. It's different than Adam before the fall. Because before the fall, Adam lived as God intended man to live, but he did so in a perfect world, in perfect relationships. Jesus 
far different, lived as God intended man to really live in a fallen world when people hated him. You see the difference? See, don't look at the life of Jesus and go, that's the way we're gonna live in heaven. No, there will be no fallen humanity. It'll be a new world and a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be perfect and we'll simply participate in the perfection. We don't get that now, but what we get is in Jesus, a person who lived in a fallen world, in broken relationships, but one with his father and peace with himself. That's fantastic. When, we, when we've been doing this song, and we're gonna close with it uh, today, this song that we call The Jesus Way. But I want to make sure you understand what we're saying when we, when we declare this song. Maybe you'll remember, we've sang this song now a couple times. If you curse me, then I'll bless you. If you hurt me, I'll forgive. If you hate me, I'll love you. I choose the Jesus way. If you're helpless, I'll defend you. If you're burdened, I'll share the weight. If you're hopeless, then let me show you there's hope in Jesus. I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus. He wore my sin. I'll gladly wear his name. Now, listen, I don't want us to think in that that the Jesus way is a code of conduct. It's a pattern of behavior. The Jesus way is a life of submitted dependence to the Father that results in loving and forgiving and helping and giving hope. But if we try to do the code of conduct apart from the disposition of what? Submitted dependence. Then we're just trying to be better people. And the Jesus way is not being a better person. The Jesus way is being a submitted, dependent person. So in the bridge, the song says, I choose surrender. I choose to love. Oh God, my Savior, you'll always be enough. See, that's the heart. So as we close, that's what we're going to start with. I choose surrender. I choose to love. Oh God, my Savior, you'll always be enough. Then what? Then, if you curse me, I'll bless you. You see it? It's a disposition of my heart that leads to a changed life, not just a code of conduct. To follow Jesus is to follow in submitted dependence the way he lived. Let's stand and let's declare it together. I choose surrender, I choose to love. Oh God, my Savior, you'll always be enough. I choose forgiveness, I choose grace. 
I choose to worship no matter what I face. I choose the Jesus way. If you curse me, then I will bless you. If you hurt me, I will forgive. If you Choose. 